Welcome to Classical Chats, I'm Tiffany. Before I start this episode, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has already donated to our current fundraiser. Just a reminder, we have a few weeks left before the end of the fundraiser for the Together with Classical Grants, which aims to support musicians, amateurs, or professionals to help pay for their lessons, for their instruments, or fund their classical music project. This time, we have the support of the Urtex publication for classical music, Schumann. And they will be supporting our fundraiser and also providing some scores to recipients. So I'm very excited about this and thank you so much for helping to grow together with classical. If you would like to help us reach our goal, please consider donating in the link that's in the description and or also now currently we have the box on YouTube where you can donate directly via YouTube. Thank you. Alright, now to the episode. If you have been watching or listening to our episodes, you know that we've had a lot of musicians, people who actively play instruments, and of course they make up a huge part of classical music, whether they do it professionally or they do it as an amateur on the side. But we've never had a perspective from a music critic. Today we have Ben Finan, who is currently the director of content at Steinway & Sons. We met, of course, through my partnership with Steinway, and a few months ago I was on his podcast, Soundboard, which is a podcast on artistry and craftsmanship, so I'll link that below for you in the description if you want to check it out. What was really fascinating though, after we recorded the episode, we got to talking, and I was fascinated by his background in music journalism and being a music critic. And so I just wanted to invite him to Classical Chats to hear his perspective what makes a good performance, what makes a good review, and what has changed so far in the past 20 years that he's been working as an editor, as a writer, and as a reviewer. He was a managing editor in the Classic Arts Division of the Playbill magazine. He's had publications in the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, New York Star-Ledger, just to name a few. And then he founded his own magazine, the award-winning Listen magazine, and then he made his way into Steinway. So we're going to hear about his journey. Well, hello, Ben. I think hey. this is our first time like seeing face-to-face, -face, maybe? That's right. When you were on the, um, the soundboard, on soundboard podcast, you were audio only. But same yes. service, so I'm sure we'll have exactly. a similarly wonderful experience. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on Classical Chats. You have such an interesting background, and I was looking through your resume just before our oh, chat, okay. and I saw that, of course, I knew that you were uh, working at these amazing publications in the past as an editor, but also on the bottom of your resume, you listed as an amateur pianist and an amateur baritone. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I didn't know about that. So then it, it uh, it's a perfect segue into the introduction question, which is how did your journey with classical music begin? That, okay, great question. And uh, that's a question I ask people, uh, but you've caught me by surprise. I, I haven't uh, always considered it about myself. Um, I uh. guess I would have to say that it began with taking piano lessons. Um, when I was a kid, I, I started with violin. I played violin for two weeks. And that's the, why it's not on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't make the resume cut. Uh, the first thing you do when you play a violin is you, you do this open A. Yeah. And my ear was good enough to know that this sounded horribly wrong, but I was also powerless to change it. And I think what I loved about the piano 
is if I play an A on the piano, um, then the tuning, all of that, it's not up to me. It's it's just the velo the velocity of how I press that key, how long I hold it. Um, and that was much more pleasing to my ear, so I, I stuck with piano. Uh, I took Did you with have a, perfect pitch? No, I, I don't. Pitch? No, uh -uh. I, I, I think I have really good relative pitch pieces that I hear a lot. I can kind of hear in my head. And then if I listen to it on record, I, I find that I'm in the right key. But I think that's more just you just keep listening until it gets ingrained in there. Right. Uh, yeah. but, but I started with a Russian piano teacher uh, who was very strict. Uh, and I could go from being genius boy to being idiot boy in like the space of 20 minutes. <laughs> Uh, and I switched to a, an, an Italian teacher who was a, a little more chill. Um, but yeah, the, uh, piano was definitely my introduction to classical, uh, along with mm -hmm. like the William Tell Overture and music from cartoons and, you know, and Bugs Bunny of and all course. that sort of stuff. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I was playing classical before I was hearing a lot of other music. And I think that helps because that really does become uh, a foundation uh, for you to, yeah. to pour things into. Yeah. Did you come from a musical family? Um, not really. My father was the musical one of my parents. He played saxophone uh, and his mother was the organist at their church growing up in, in Texas. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee, but neither of them was particularly musical. But my father had a really great eclectic record collection. So I think you were asking me, you know, what was my first intro to classical? But I think my first intro to music was my dad's record collection, which had all sorts of things. It was there was classical, there was jazz, there was rock, there was blues, uh, there was stand-up comedy, <laughs> and so I, I enjoyed I enjoyed all of those things early and often, and I think that helped me grow my worldview, which is that while I really love classical. I don't consider classical like the pinnacle of this musical period. Uh, sorry, musical pyramid. I, I see it more as that genius can exist in any genre, whether that's classical or jazz or rock or hip hop or whatever. Um, and I think that helps keep me grounded uh, because I'm, I'm not a fan at the end of the day of classical snobs who don't who have no consciousness of the music outside of their genre and of how it fits in right especially in 2021 let's not pretend that mozart is our contemporary right it's great music but Thelonious monk also wrote great music and that's that's kind of my advocacy yeah i remember we talked about this and your various interest in other um, musical genres and trying to bring that into steinway but let's go before we touch on that that's sure. kind of like the most recent uh milestone but piano lessons and mm. then baritone singing yeah i um <laughs> i guess i i have a good ear i have a really good ear it's not the best ear, but I feel that everything I do is somehow ear related, right? Piano, singing, writing, doing podcasts, being an editor, all of that at the end of the day is related to, does this sound right? Does this sound good? How could it sound better? Whether it's words or, or whether it's music. Um, so yeah, I, 
I think that singing was just kind of natural for me. I didn't really do it so much until college when I joined a, a chamber singing group. And that was a new experience for me. And I really enjoyed that, um, this idea of a small, tight ensemble where there's nowhere to hide <laughs> and where you really have to know your pitches, especially I was usually bass one or bass two. So you're kind of grounding everything. And then also that, that trains your ears so that when you're listening to music, you can hear that ground bass, right? Which is, which is in, in every classical piece and it's also in every pop piece. What are these changes? You know if you listen to the root and, and what's happening with the music, right? So I'm not a great singer, but singing was really important for me to be able to understand how music works. Because it's really, I can play a tritone on the piano, right? Just like pushing down those keys. There it is. But if if I try to sing one, I really have to know those notes. I have to own those notes and I have to understand what the pitches are. Um, so it's, it's much easier to play uh, pantonal or atonal music on a piano than it is to sing it. Because you don't have to understand the notes when you're playing them on the piano the way you have to understand them when you're singing them, because you're actually creating that sound. Isn't that interesting, though? Because in the very beginning, you start off with the violin and you couldn't control and make that pitch. That's right. And then somehow you made your way back to do it exactly that. But with your I voice. did. I think I think <laughs> I was a kid and and um, it was so frustrating to hear that that scratchy violin sound and to be unable to fix it. And, you know, and, and, you know, as a spoiler, that's kind of what happened with my piano playing is I feel like I got to a place where my interpretive powers were well beyond my technical ability. And that led to a similar frustration on my part and saying, okay, you know what? I want to make a contribution to the arts. I am not a great pianist. So I got to find another way to do that. And so writing, how did you find yeah. that uh, calling? In your yeah, life? that's, um, yeah. So, I, you know, I started writing uh, about music in my, in my college newspaper. And I had a, I had a little column called Ben Finan Music Man. And it was, <laughs> it was really to encourage uh, correct pronunciation of my last name. Uh, but also, Smart. It gave, yeah, it gave me an opportunity to like, start reviewing albums and reviewing concerts. I didn't really know what I was doing at all. Uh, but then when I graduated college, I took some of those clips uh, to people who were working in music journalism, uh, including Steve Smith, uh, Greg Sandow, Bradley Bambarger. These are guys who, uh, who are still writing uh, and are now my peers. And I, I would take them these clips and they would say, okay, you know, this is good. This is not so good. You need to do more of this here, more of that there. Um, and then whatever my main job was that I had, I would try to write about music on the side. And that eventually led to freelance work with the Newark Star Ledger, uh, which was then uh, an enormous newspaper, uh, as well as with the San Francisco Chronicle. So I would occasionally write articles on classical music um, for those papers. And I would just do that on the side of whatever my day job was. So I would go to work, then I would 
get on a train from New York and go to Princeton and hear a string quartet and get home and write it up at midnight for the paper the next day. Uh, and those were those were very exciting uh, music journalism days when newspapers still sort of reigned as the the place where folks got their news. Yeah, I was just thinking about this because you were saying that you were bringing your clips to other journalists to right. kind of get their feedback on what's good yeah. and what's bad. So first question that came to mind was what, what makes a good music review? And the mm. second question that came to mind was in this day and age, what is a review and mm -hmm. what separates it from comments? These, a, okay, these know? are these are two fantastic <laughs> questions. Let's start with the first one, which is what makes a good music review? I think initially when you start writing about music you get kind of obsessed with this notion of this is good and this is bad and my job <laughs> is to figure out if something's good or bad and then explain why and i don't think that's exactly what you're supposed to do i think if you are reviewing something which is different than say a feature, but let's say I'm reviewing a concert or I'm reviewing uh, an album. I think what you're looking to do as a critic is to decide, is something convincing? Did, the, did this project convince me? That's really what you're asking yourself. Not, is this good or is it bad? But is it convincing, right? If you play, I, I was just at the... Uh, I was just at the Chopin competition, which happens in Warsaw every five years. And I watched 12 finalists uh, each play either <laughs> the E minor or the F minor Chopin piano concerto. And when you hear 12 people play the same thing, then you can really, can really get into the details. But what you're really asking yourself is, Am I convinced of this interpretation? Is this interpretation convincing? If it is, you have to figure out what is it that the pianist has done, is doing, that, that makes you believe in what they're saying about the music. And if it isn't convincing, if it falls flat, if you find your mind wandering, you've got to figure out why. You have to figure out why it is that, that the musical ball has been dropped. And I find again and again that, particularly in classical music and these longer form pieces, um, it's all about the through line. There's a line running through each piece, whether it's for piano, whether it's for string quartet, whether it's for an orchestra. And a, a pianist's job, a soloist's job, any musician's job is to keep that through line Keep it, keep the notes spinning, keep things moving forward so that you're, you're there as, as both as the artist and as the listener, you're convinced of what's happening. You're along for the ride and things are moving. Um, so again and again, when I review, which isn't so often now, that's kind of what I'm looking for is the through line. That doesn't mean you can't paint a lot of great details, but I need the big picture. I need the big picture. And, you know, tempo has a lot to do with that. Like, does, does your tempo convince me? You can play a Chopin prelude. You can play it very slow. You can play it very fast. And it'll be convincing at both speeds. But it's up to the player to, to be so convincing that, that it feels right. You know, when you listen to something like, oh, this is it. 
this this is it. It's because the the player has convinced you that this is the tempo. So how much of it is instinctual, and how much of it is? I mean, that I don't mean like a measurement in grams, but um, mm. how much of it is from your academic studies, if any? Because something that I've been wondering, as the one who would be reviewed, you know, on the other side of the um, of this, I don't know, stage audience um, world. It's um, yeah, this question of what makes them have a certain opinion about music and what gives their um, opinion the ground and the value. So yeah, I don't know if I th- you have something to speak to that. I really do. Uh, I think those are great questions to ask as an artist. And unfortunately, I don't think that all reviewers are in the right headspace and with the right training to be doing what they're doing. I uh, I feel that if you're writing about classical music, you better have fluency in a classical instrument. Otherwise, I'm not so sure that I'm interested in what you have to say. I think you have to have been in those trenches and been playing an instrument. I don't care if it's like trombone, violin, piano, percussion, something. I want you to be able to read music. I want you to have played some masterworks. And then going past that, I want you to come into a performance without any preconceived notions in your head. I don't want you to sit down. I think it is possible because I I think it's possible to have a familiarity with the work, but then to literally approach that with an open mind. So you can sit down to Parsifal and say, okay, I've seen Parsifal. (laughs) I know Parsifal, but you can't sit down and say Parsifal should be like this. This is how that should be, because then you're measuring the performance uh, that you're about to see against something that you have in your head that may or may not exist, right? Let's remember that what's really cool about classical music is if, uh, if, we, take a, if we take a Led Zeppelin song, Black Dog, right? That's a rock and roll classic, and Zeppelin recorded it. There is a definitive recording of Black Dog by which all covers can be judged. There is no definitive recording of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. He didn't put it on wax for us. He just gave us the score. And all the score is, is a tool. It's a tool for other performers to look at and say, okay, these are the ideas. But ultimately, what are we doing? Like, we memorize the score, and then the score becomes a tool for us to perform. It's the same with a script for a play. Uh, I, I can look at the script as uh, for, for Hamlet by Shakespeare, but Hamlet doesn't exist until it's performed on the stage. I can read through the score of the seventh. I can see how many fortes are put in. I can see what degree of control uh, Beethoven tries to assert or tries to leave to the performer. But ultimately, it's not the Beethoven seventh until... I sit down in the concert hall and hear it, or I sit down at my stereo, or I pull it up on Spotify on my phone, whatever. It, it doesn't exist until it's actually happening. And that is what is so wonderful about the performing arts is this, it's this ephemeral thing that exists only in the moment, and then it's gone. It's gone. It's not there. You can't point to it. It's not a painting on the wall where you can see, okay, uh, the blues and the grays here are coming in and there's orange in the corner. You can't, you can't even point to it. It's there and it's gone. And so that's another thing as a, uh, as a reviewer, you gotta, you gotta have an open mind. You have to be paying attention. You have to be taking notes. You have to take notes. You cannot let it wash over you and then later try to recall 
what happened in detail. If something goes well, if something, or rather if, if something is convincing, if something is less convincing, jot it down and then try to make sense of all that afterward. So I think that's, that's my advice for, uh, for reviewers out there. Hmm. It's very fascinating to hear it from a reviewer. Uh, <laughs> and so I appreciate you taking uh, us along and the process and what makes it good or bad. So then, um, the second question was, hmm. what sets that apart? Especially since you have been uh, writing for, what, 20 years or something like this? You've mm -hmm. been in this um, industry for a while. And so pre-digital, pre-Spotify, pre-social media to hmm. now, what kind right. of changes have you seen both in the reviewing and both um, the question of what makes it a review and what makes it a... I don't know, a, a comment on social media. If there is a sure. difference, does it matter? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's go back to the Newark star ledger, right? Which I think when I was writing for it was the seventh or eighth uh, most read paper in the country. I used to know nine people at the Newark star ledger and now I know one, right? So what happened? We had a shift from print media to online media. So for a while, it was print, then we had the rise of digital, and there was this kind of uneasy symbiosis where uh, digital and, and print sort of coexisted. And now I would say that, that print has fallen uh, about as low as it can go and, and still survive. So what does that mean uh, as far as what we ultimately get? There are many fine sources uh, of, any, of, of information online. And there are many sources of bad information online. And I think the, the biggest challenge online is that if I wrote something for the Star Ledger, it would pass through at least two, maybe three sets of eyes before it went to print, right? My editor would look at it. A copy editor would look at it. Maybe a proofreader would also look at it. Each time... Um, that that text is being refined it's being polished i'm getting questions like where did you get your information from here where did this number come from uh who's this guy you mentioned him over here he, he doesn't appear in the beginning of the story um so we could call these people gatekeepers that's a loaded term now but i don't care i'm going to use it anyway and gatekeepers ultimately are going to give you a better product than if I, Ben, sit down, open up Facebook and just type something <laughs> and then share it to my friends, right? What's going to be the better piece of writing? Is it going to be the thing that I did out of my head uh, as, as one draft? Or is it going to be something that passes through multiple sets of eyes, each who are focusing in on different things and all of us trying to contribute to make it better. Well, I think it's I think it's the uh, latter. I think it's it's the print piece that has gone through a bunch of eyeballs. So, I think online, I would still venture toward uh, sites and sources that use gatekeepers, um, and I think that I think that's all I can say about that. Um, I think ultimately it's detrimental that we have the fall of print. I wish that there was better gatekeeping all around on the web, but of course it's very hard to do because, and I don't, I don't have to explain this, we all know this, it's, it's enormous, 
and anyone can post anything at any time. And, you know, it's the, it's the old quote about um, the, the, a lie can make it halfway around the world before the truth is finished getting out of bed or whatever. Right. So we've, we've seen problems that, um, that the web has given us in terms of misinformation. And I think that, that, you know, pervades into cultural criticism as well. Uh, I think someone with a blog is less valuable than someone who has been edited by three other people before the text sees the light of day. Interesting. So it's really about the process and the more eyes on it and the more perspectives to really fact check it. And well, I don't mean this in a political sense, but in this um, scenario, I think that's interesting. That I think really I think so too. Yeah, a it, collective I'm, effort. Yeah, it, but but you know what? Like, look at it from the artist standpoint too. If you are learning a Beethoven sonata and you just play it and play it and play it and play it and don't get any feedback from anyone and you don't go to see a teacher and you don't go in for coachings, then are you just, and you just show up uh, and play a recital, is it going to be better or worse than if you had taken that piece along the way and, and gotten feedback? It's the same reasons that orchestras rehearse, right? They don't all just get the score and look at it and learn their parts and then show up and play the performance. Things have to be worked out. And writing is no different from from learning a piece of music. That speaks uh, really deeply at me because I am kind of doing exactly what you're uh, arguing against because I'm not bringing what I'm, I've been preparing for um, my concert in Dresden and uh, Kennedy Center. And so uh, some people have been asking, oh, do you go to a teacher to play? And for me, it's more about the self-critic um, in mm-hmm. me that keeps refining it rather than me bringing it to someone. So I wonder at what point can you actually uh, be the one, let's say, giving you advice like in the beginning rather I, than them asking for more right. and more I, uh, Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the more you do it, what's Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, right? Once <laughs> you've put in your time, like I'm sure that, uh, you know, Maurizio Polini doesn't have to go see anybody before playing his Beethoven. At, at what point do you get there? I think that is, uh, that's up to, that's up to each individual performer. But I can tell you this as a writer, if I have a chance to show someone something before I publish it, I absolutely will. And, you know, I, 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 I put out uh, a magazine for Steinway, uh, once or twice a year, the Steinway owners magazine that doesn't just see my eyes. I definitely send it to a copy editor. I will definitely send it to someone else uh, because, you know, there's going to be things that other people will see. And I think you can always benefit from an extra set of eyes or ears. Yeah. I mean, I do it with some small part of my audience and I kind of understand from their perspective, oh, now they listen to a certain part of Clara Schumann and recently someone said uh, differently now. And then that made me think, okay, what is it that I do there and what can I do better? And so I get some sort of feedback, but not in the academic sense. So that's interesting yeah, though. And yeah. I think it still, it still applies in so many different ways, but let's go back to your career for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, magazine, how, I think it makes sense having heard your story of how you, you already said you knew you had a good ear. You can tell yeah. when something is uh, not right and you're really not in the capacity to make it right and uh, going into reviewing music. So Listen Magazine, you want to tell me a little bit about that? And I think that morphed 
uh, under Steinway's umbrella at some point. That's I'm, right. That's, yeah. I got a, yeah. That's yeah, what so, I, I, I guessed. <laughs> I no, no, you, you got it. Sure. Yeah, you got it. So yeah. we, we started Listen Magazine in 2009. Uh, and at that time, I was with a company called Archive Music, uh, which sells uh, classical CDs online. Uh, and that magazine and that company uh, were eventually sold to Steinway. Uh, so Listen was in print for, uh, let's see, maybe seven years, and it's now online uh, at listenmusicculture.com. So yeah, that was that was a tremendous experience starting a Listen, uh, starting a magazine from scratch in 2009, which was the year of like the great magazine die off, and we were starting something new. Um, and it was tremendously exciting, and it was a beautiful magazine, uh, and still is now in its digital incarnation. But um, I had had, you know, training before. I had worked as a managing editor at Playbill. Um, I had worked for the 92nd Street Y in New York doing their publications. So it was a it was a, a great next step for me, and it was fun to uh, to put a uh, a a new magazine together from soup to nuts, as they say. And it started, uh, we called it Listen Life with Classical Music. And we then expanded our focus from classical uh, for all the reasons I've, I've said earlier. Uh, so it became Listen Life with Music and Culture. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's been a great experience. We, uh, we, we won some awards. We had a lot of great pieces. We had beautiful design. And uh, I'm really glad um, to have put that together. And I'm, I'm pleased about its current uh, digital incarnation at uh, listenmusicculture.com, where I have all the best uh, pieces from past years and some new ones as well. Yeah, I think I read some really interesting ones and different kinds of interviews, and it's it's great to see the variety that you have. And actually, I, I forgot to mention, I have to ask, you did have a lot of experience before you started your own magazine. Hmm. And so... What kind of uh, experiences did you pick up from working at Playbill, for example? Mm. And also what kind of observations, again, kind of going back to the question, sorry, no. going back to the question of um, from the printed offline medium to online and any shifts in the music. We've talked about the review aspect and the changes in there, but mm -hmm. for the actual music, having the various experiences from writing, if from Playbill to your magazine, that was a really long-winded question. No, no, I, I I, I, yeah, I totally get it. Uh, so when I was at Playbill, I was responsible for the classic arts playbills. Uh, so that means Carnegie Hall, uh, Met Opera, uh, various orchestras and, and operas throughout uh, the United States. And so that just gave me a good sense of when you look at what everyone's presenting all the time, all year, you can kind of spot trends. And it also gave me an opportunity to speak to people when they wanted to do interviews. And ultimately, that's what pushed me more um, into interviewing as my my favorite uh, you know, medium of of journalism, because I don't feel that there are a lot of good interviews uh, out there, especially with musicians, because I think a lot of people come at musicians from what we would call the fanboy perspective, which is like, oh, I really like this guy and I want to ask him about these albums that I like. Right. But I'm really interested. And this is why I do the Steinway podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. 
called Soundboard. I'm always interested in how do great artists make great art. And I think there's a dearth of interviews that explore how that magic happens, right? Because we all know, (laughs) you know, I know, it's not magic. It's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of training. And it's where that training and hard work and inspiration comes together. And I think it's fascinating to talk to great artists and ask them, what's your process like? Because it's it's not the same uh, for any two people. Everyone has a different way of getting at that grace, greatness, you know? And with classical music, we have these great works, right? We have, let's, let's stick with Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. There's so many ways to approach it. There's so many different ways in. So, you know, there's, there's always a lot of uh, people writing about what makes something great. And this greatness exists uh, not because people have just played it a lot, but because there are ways in, because there's so many cool ideas happening that there's always a new way to explore. Right. So that's what I really enjoyed doing both with Listen Magazine and now with my podcast is like just talking to people that I admire, people that I respect, people who the world admires and respects for for their um, for their contributions to music and to the arts about how it is they do what they do and what insights they have from doing it for like 30, 40 years. It's so great. And all you have to do is ask them. And I feel that so often people don't. Uh, You know, if you think about where you see most interviews, maybe it's on a talk show, maybe it's on television, but people are sort of doing this talk show circuit of, I have a new book out and it's about this. Oh, that's really interesting. Go buy his book, right? But what did, what did we learn? We didn't learn anything about the subject or about how he got to uh, what he's talking about now. So that's something that, that I'm trying to, uh, to dig into because I feel like if it's something I'm interested in, I'm, I'm sure there are other people that want to hear about it too. Yeah, no, I, I remember that this is what we connected on. And I remember talking about this um, in our episode and about the process and yeah. how that's really missing. And so it's great to hear another uh, perspective on exactly the same observation. And um, yeah, that's very interesting. So any, I, I don't know what other, actually other questions I have. I think that's been so interesting so far. The only one that really kind of came up, I don't know if you have one to highlights so that Mm. in case anyone is interested in listening to soundboard Mm. and seeing more of your work if there is a particular artist process that really uh, stood out to you um, sure if you want to highlight anyone yeah i I think i think three that you might want to check out from the soundboard podcast uh is bill murray who we all know and love but he's he's more of a man of, of arts and letters than you'd expect uh it's regina specter who is just a fantastic singer-songwriter, and she has a a background that is different from you might uh, expect. And then uh, I liked him so much, I interviewed him twice, uh, Robert Glasper, who is a Steinway artist and is at the intersection of, let's say, jazz and hip-hop. And when I talked to him uh, for the, the podcast, he was on his way up, and now he's definitely arrived. 
So I, I would check out those episodes. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'm curious about what it's like to hear from someone growing up and then yeah. hearing them at their pinnacle, because I always feel like I'm still like trying to build up and I wonder how I can be like 10 years from now. So I'll be very interested in that. Uh, well, it's Interestingly, great- sorry, yeah. just to say, uh, that's kind of the, the, the coolest time to talk to people is when they're on their way up and they're less guarded about things or when they're, when they're really old masters and, um, they, they also, at both points, they're not so concerned with how they're being perceived when they talk to you. And so that's when you get some good stuff. Like yeah, I, talk, I talked to Pierre Boulez a few years before he died for Listen Magazine. Uh-huh. And he was just a real pleasure. Whereas 30 years ago, you know, that guy was known for being very aggressive. So it, it's cool when you can get people looking back and when you can get people looking forward. Sorry, but I, I interrupted your outro. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Actually, no, not an outro. Let's not end this because now you just said looking forward, which yeah. then brought me to think we've talked about, okay, what are the things that you've noticed changing? So what's going forward? What, how do you see the future of music, the industry, mm-hmm. and perhaps even your contributions to the industry? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's troubling right now, right? We, we, we hear that artists are not being fairly compensated for their music. We know this to be true. We know that, you know, if you get a bajillion plays on Spotify, the the people who are really going to get paid are uh, the owners of that content. So I would, I guess my best advice to artists is to be really aware of your contracts and be really aware of what you're signing up for. And I think you are a tremendous example of someone who literally does it themselves, right? You have, yeah, you have, you have, you have a YouTube channel wherein you take people behind the scenes and you do that by yourself. You literally do it sometimes from under a Steinway, right? Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool because you, you own that channel. You own the content you produce. You own, um, you know, these recordings, whether they're whether they're on video or, or elsewhere. And I think that's really important now for artists is to understand, you know, understand how to own your material, understand what you're signing. Anytime you sign anything, anytime you sign anything, run that contract past someone who knows. Right. We were talking about another set of eyes. If my job is to be an artist, maybe I don't always know. Uh, how the industry works. Maybe I don't always know. Maybe I don't know what a work for hire is versus something that I'm going to get points on later. Right? Run that. Run that thing by uh, someone else who who is a lawyer and who knows. Any any time you have an opportunity to pursue something independently, do it. You know, and I think that's really important for artists now because. As the landscape gets more and more diffuse, we talked about it with writing. It's the same with music, right? You can you can now put things on SoundCloud. Uh, you can reduce. You can release your own music on Spotify. Uh, but are you going to be are you going to be better getting a record contract? Can you get a record contract right now? You know, it's it's uh, it's really tough. And I think the thing you know, just to sum up is to really always own what it is you do so that you reap the benefits of whatever happens to that. 
it's tremendously exciting to have these outlets online for for putting your content. But you you have to understand how that works and you have to do it in a way that lets you take advantage of your material and not let others take advantage of you. Ah, so it's really a message of ownership. Ownership, of always. Music. Yeah, own, own your art. Own your art, artists, as best you can. That's very, you just keep sparking these additional questions at me. So I apologize for this, but no, I got to ask, but when you say that, oh, there are so many outlets for for music and uh, content, mm. <laughs> we talked about this. Um, so do you see that as a good thing that there is uh, so much access and so much um, music interpretations? It, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, just like it is with music journalism like we were speaking about right so now instead of instead of the major newspapers and uh so let's say you have the the newspapers and the labels right uh but now as a musician i have different platforms i can put things on youtube i can put things on spotify i can get something on apple music i can go uh to soundcloud so those things are there but how do i get people to listen when there's so many voices. I think that's the challenge. And I don't have an answer for that, but I, I think that this is a question that should always be being asked. Uh, you know, where is this gonna go? How am I gonna grow it? How am I gonna monetize it? It's the same with, let's say I'm a composer. If you're writing a string quartet, that's great. But do you have a quartet to play this? Do you, do you have people who will play it in a hall where there's an audience? Because if not, you're going to write that string quartet and put it in the drawer, right? So you have to think about these things from the beginning. What am I creating? What's the best way to leverage what I'm creating? And how can I grow my audience? It's very nice that you always go back to, sorry, you always go back to the artist perspective of and the creator of the music. But what about from the reviewer's side? Mm -hmm. and the listener's side how especially with your experience having watched the industry change from the uh, editor positions right anything to comment on from that uh, other side so there's this there's always existed uh in music journalism this sort of unholy triangle right you have editors you have writers and you have publicists okay if i am at one point in the triangle I have to know the other two points. So if I'm an editor, I have to know writers that will write for my publication. And I also have to be in touch with publicists who can both suggest writers and suggest um, topics for things to write about or grant me access to artists that I want to speak to. If I'm a writer, I have to know editors to pitch stories to. And I also have to know publicists uh, to to get ideas to pitch from. If I'm a publicist, I have to know editors of the publications and I have to know writers to pitch those editors. So we all have to know each other and we all have to be in constant conversation. This can make for a very sort of closed world. And that's why sometimes you'll see the same artists being (laughs) written about in this flurry right? Of publications. It's because some publicist has done their job and gotten in touch with everyone and sold them, right? So I think if you are not a publicist, which I am not, uh, it's important to keep an independent mind, right? 
don't get sold a story on someone that you don't believe in just because they're available and they're accessible. And you as an editor or as a writer should also be on the lookout for great talent and new things and new music that not enough people know about. And if you have something like that, we had a, we had a recurring feature in Listen called Unsung, which was, hey, here's a piece of music and you haven't heard it, but you should and here's why. I, I think people should always you know, be looking for the unsung because, you know, we don't need, we don't need more coverage of big pop stars. They're not good anyway. Right. Let's, let's find the people that we want to bring to our listeners attention because we believe in the music they're making and we believe that it is convincing. Well said. That was, uh, I don't have anything more to add to that. I, I appreciate your very strong, um, opinions and very uh direct succinct it all it's uh maybe it's because you you have a background in living in germany as well that <laughs> yeah i come strong I and like, it, like the germans but but it's like it's also what i appreciate and my best friends are germans so it, it's uh, it all works well it's been great uh it's more than you know just like going around and like right. not really direct so yeah it's been great well um anything you want to add as the last thing anything i should know about people uh, should know about you should you should immediately subscribe to the soundboard podcast which is available on spotify uh apple music deezer wherever you pod your casts soundboard the steinway and sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship there you go <laughs> perfect <laughs> well thank you all uh, right thank yeah. you tiffany i really appreciate it thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode it was very interesting for me to hear his very honest opinions on music and i hope you learned something from ben as well all the links will be in the description for you if you want to check out his podcast soundboard or want to donate to together with classical Thank you very much for your support. I look forward to the next chat.